Is it acceptable to go to Mickey D's just for a drink? <laughs> of course it is. But good luck leaving with just a drink. It's more than a drink. It's a Mickey D's drink. And right now, a small Minute Maid slushie is just $1.59. So all you have to do is choose a flavor, like the tropical mango or strawberry watermelon, and enjoy like it's meant to be enjoyed. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Two, one. Never has there been a better time to be alive in human history. If you're not feeling it, you must discover why. Join Matthew Bolton in developing and applying a framework of objective optimism toward a flourishing life of meaning, health, and happiness. Here's your host, Matthew Bolton. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Mr. Brightside. I'm Matthew Bolton. Today's show is something of a listener question. I heard from an old friend recently, and I mean one who I played a few years of minor hockey with way back in the day, and then hadn't even been Facebook friends with, and so had lost track of completely. And so I was very surprised and delighted to receive a message from a distant but immediately familiar name, Brad Hulsman, on my Mr. Brightside page. He said, Matt, how I circled back to finding you again shows me one more time that the world can be a very tiny place. I've enjoyed a number of your episodes, and most recently landed on episode 50 while ironing my shirts. Now imagine that, like I can barely find my own podcast in a Google search because of that killer song. So in any case, he says that having jumped down many rabbit holes, he found that his interests lined up with what I'm doing. And I was very happy and frankly flattered as he continued, I'm a lifelong learning addict. Your dissection and interest in optimism is a fun listen and carries well alongside my other wheelhouse podcast interests. And he names Tim Ferriss, Lewis Howes, Jordan Harbinger, etc., And I mean, I was flattered that a guy who takes his life seriously, he calls himself a lifelong learning addict, wants to hear what I have to say about things. Well, Brad, you're the kind of person I want to attract, and thank you for the kind and encouraging words. And for your question, as he does go on to ask a direct question, although due to the opportunities that arose to record interviews with Lewis Page and Dr. Fleet Mall, which have been published as the two previous episodes, and given our biweekly schedule on top, it's been put off for several weeks in real time. So here, at last, Brad, I present your item of interest. He says, You asked out loud what we would like you to dig into, so I'd like to hear more about your dissection of hardship accelerating optimism. Hardship seems to go in polar opposite directions for individual outcomes, the crushed soul or the Victor Frankl-esque direction of focused optimistic purpose. Now, I don't know how high above my pay grade this is, but I suppose we'll find out. In any case, I do have something to say about it. First, I'm interpreting this in part as... Are people propelled to positive action when they hit a snag or rock bottom, or are they crushed under the weight? And why do various individuals end up on polar opposite paths? And how can we ensure it's the former optimistic path? And I'm glad Brad has framed it as hardship accelerating optimism, as it will lead me today to emphasize that my concept of what I call objective optimism is at once a mindset or attitude and a method. Optimism qua psychology is that fundamental focus on the positive, but it's also, for me, about taking rational action. You might think of the term in this practical respect as akin to optimization, but both this mindset and method are encompassed in the concept of optimism for me. Of course, we'll get more into that and how it compares with Viktor Frankl's tragic optimism, the famous uh, neurologist, psychiatrist, philosopher, as you heard Brad refer to him in the question. Another way the beginning of this question might be interpreted is then whether hardship is necessary for success. Does one need some deep adversity to awaken and accelerate optimism? It is true that many reach rock bottom or some otherwise low point before being shocked into action. Or, you know, some people have a near-death experience that arouses appreciation for the limits of time in life, and then they make a change. 
but is such necessary? Or can we learn from others and choose not to wait for calamity to prompt us towards positive action? But we'll take that up somewhat separately a little later. So as to the first issue, I will frame it fundamentally as that of resignation versus resilience and responsibility. And the key question will be, how can we build resilience so that we might be among those who respond positively to and thrive off of adversity? So to that, I'll summarize my answer in that there is an element of conditioning, one's childhood and youth experiences, etc. Yes, yes, there are natural dispositions, there are hormonal and other physical and chemical issues that are at play in making it more or less difficult for a given individual to develop resilience. And I can't really speak to all that with the expertise of a psychiatrist, neurologist or other. But I can say from my own dissection of the issue that as adults, we have free will which incidentally I think a lot of the evolutionary psychologists egregiously ignore or discount. Now, let's be clear on what this is. Free will is not about the lightning decisions we make throughout the day that are or appear largely subconscious. And I think it's this view that makes even the smartest people conclude that free will is an illusion at best and non-existent at worst. Free will is the fundamental choice to focus or not, which we can all exercise right now or at any time. You can choose, for instance, to exert the effort to pay close attention to what I'm saying, or you can let your mind drift. This is what we can all recognize for ourselves. While we don't know its origin and many other things about its nature, we can see clearly that it exists. It is self-evident. And it is up to each of us to engage it to think seriously about what causes will result in the ends we want to achieve in life. This is part of an optimistic approach to life, and it can be learned and practiced. It can become a habit. Through this choice and action, we can develop a virtuous cycle, which I call optimism, and which consists in great part of resilience. And again, resilience and optimism feed each other in that virtuous cycle. Developing this mindset and method will make us more likely to harness hardship when it arises and come out stronger on the other side, that is, to grow, instead of being crushed by it. The antithesis of free will is determinism, and this pessimistic view rejects agency and leads one to resignation and inaction. So the bottom line I respond with today is that we are not determined. And we must embrace the responsibility to exercise our own free will toward the end of reinforcing resilience and optimism. As to the second part, I say summarily that we can awaken without adversity. Lewis Page, a recent guest who I mentioned earlier and to whom I will refer later, says that we do need some kind of catalyst, but that it can come from anywhere. And I agree with that completely. To awaken in the context of today's issue means to be conscious, to activate that free will, and then to choose to focus on the good and act in ways that lead to positive results in reality. Sometimes it takes rock bottom to wake a person up, but let's hope we can learn to do it right now, today, and maybe this show can help you. Now, to really start on the first, I looked into Viktor Frankl, admittedly shallowly, as Brad refers to him in this question. And by the way, imagine I had never heard of his work. I'm a psychology major and these days a proponent of a concept that includes a great psychological component, but there it is. And you know, though, it is true that of all the economics majors that I teach in my university classes, I always ask them, and they've never heard of Jean-Baptiste Say or Ludwig von Mises, yet they all know Keynes, so figure that for yourself. In any case, looking into him, I discover that much of what he says aligns with my own views, although I will highlight where I don't necessarily differ, but perhaps clarify some things in a slightly different light. I've learned that Frankl developed logotherapy and existential analysis, which are based on philosophical and psychological concepts, particularly the desire to find a meaning in life and, wait for it, free will. Frankl identified three main ways of realizing meaning in life, by making a difference in the world, by having particular experiences, or by adopting particular attitudes. 
Now, there are three primary techniques offered by logotherapy and existential analysis to induce those respective realizations in clients. And while I can't speak much to the logotherapy applied in the first two, I sympathize with and will emphasize the last one, that of Socratic dialogue and attitude modification. That is, asking questions designed to help a client find and pursue self-defined meaning in their life. And this sounds a lot like my own approach. I want to ask questions and modify my attitude or mindset. I want to develop an attitude of optimism, which includes, and in some ways is essentially, the pursuit of self-defined meaning in my life. Now, of course, I don't discount the other techniques and I'll want to learn more about them, although they are best left to trained experts in therapy. Now, another thing I've encountered in my scratch into Frankel's ideas is a relatively new phenomenon people are calling toxic positivity, which I learned of in the context of some people arguing that it may be effectively countered by Frankel's tragic optimism. Now, I found this very curious because the whole discussion or debate reflected a lot of my own identification of what I call a subjective optimist, quote unquote, versus my objective optimist in place of it. It is said that toxic positivity encourages people to deny or avoid negative feelings and to pretend that everything is okay. In my terms, this is the subjective optimist who tries to evade the negative and instead puts on the smiling face. And in my writings, I say that he is erected so that pessimists may rationalize their defeatist view of life and claim the rational high ground. You see, if they'd called it fake positivity, I could at least get behind that in the same way that my subjective optimist is meant to highlight and reject such a destructive concept and approach. But observe that they don't replace it with any rational conception of positivity, leaving us only with pessimism as a default. And I don't see any other purpose in trying to promote this package deal, associating both rational and irrational positivity and optimism with toxicity, than to justify their own resignation and shirking of responsibility, and to excuse others to simply accept their own misery and despair. And it seems to be working, as uh, you know, I then saw articles from serious psychology publications with headlines like, why positive thinking is bad for you, etc. So can we get something more empowering here instead? Well, there is a third rational and optimistic alternative. Objective optimism, by contrast to subjective optimism, is not about always feeling happy or suppressing negative feelings and ignoring negative circumstances. It only asks whether it does any good to give them power. You may acknowledge them, feel them, but then still refuse to make them the dominant face of your reality. A great expression that I took away from my interview with Lewis Page was, where your focus goes, your energy flows. And that's what I mean. You don't ignore them, but you don't give them energy or life by focusing on them. Instead, you feed only the positive things around you, which never cease to exist, even in the darkest of places. But it sounds like they're trying to equate this with leaving them unprocessed, etc. They're saying that to be optimistic is to attempt to only feel happy. Who ever said that? Right? Well, certainly no one on this show. And I think this is a good opportunity to refer to my most comprehensive essay, What is Objective Optimism?, which can be found on my website at matthewbolton.ca. In it, I write, and I quote, I have taken great pains to separate objective optimism from the subjectivist who evades real risk or downside and attempts to operate in a kind of ignorance's bliss euphoria. It'll all work out is not a formula for optimal results. I have repeatedly emphasized that the issue of optimism versus pessimism is not about accurately or inaccurately calculating probabilities, but rather, given the probable outcomes, upon what does one place one's focus and how does one proceed in action. And here, it is important to note that one can still be optimistic when rejecting an unfavorable project or alternative, and likewise can still be pessimistic after accepting a favorable one. It is not pessimism which should get the credit when one rationally opts out of an endeavor. It is only the caricature created to rationalize pessimism, the subjective, fingers-crossed, quote-unquote, optimist, who says to any proposal, yeah, go for it, I trust it'll all work out. Real optimism is not about evading awareness of risk or menace, but of putting it in its proper place, unquote. 
Now, there's a little context to that paragraph that's missing here as a standalone excerpt, but I hope the point is well taken. And that is later in the essay. But let's move up earlier to where I lay out, so what is objective optimism? Quote, objective optimism is the willful mindset or method applied toward optimizing results in a given context. To be objective means that one identifies and appreciates all facts, and then to be optimistic means that given the relative facts, one chooses to focus on what one has to build upon in achieving one's best possible results, and not on what one lacks or what might thwart one's goals. This approach is obviously distinct from pessimism, the mental method or tendency to focus on and or inflate the unfavorable conditions one has to deal with, and to expect failure. It is also distinct from subjective optimism, which cannot really be classified as optimism, because by dropping objectivity and ignoring relevant facts, a subjectivist is sure not to achieve optimal results, but certain failure. Such a mindset is often mistaken for optimism in that the person hopes for the best, but blind hope without cause and objective reality inevitably turns into uncertainty and fear, and ultimately pessimism, regardless of what subjective fancies one pretends to believe." So you can see clearly what I'm promoting even given the colloquial Mr. Brightside in my title, is not any form of toxic positivity or any kind of rah-rah evasion of real calamity. What I am proposing sounds very akin to Frankl's tragic optimism, although I'll say uh, I want to highlight where my own concept is slightly distinct from that, but on the whole, it mirrors a lot of what I've derived using my own terms. Now, I think one way in which to highlight the parallels between my objective optimism and his tragic optimism is in an example used in my essay. In the essay, I pit an objective optimist, a pessimist, and a subjective optimist in various scenarios to illustrate the efficacy or impotence of each respective approach in dealing with real life. And in one horrible example, I venture to the extremity of being held in a concentration camp. My objective optimist appears as follows. Quote, Meanwhile, unlike the subjective optimist, an objective optimist is fully aware of the dangers and of one's chances of survival. And unlike the pessimist, he regards the situation as an aberration and as somewhat of a joke. It's not funny that he may die, but in a grand metaphysical way, these pretentious monsters holding him are contemptible and pathetic. And though the knowledge of his righteousness and superiority to his captors color his view of the whole situation, that is not where his focus lies, and it is not upon that truth that he will take consolation and rest. His focus is on what he can do until he is free or can act no more. It's all on trying to figure it out, work with what he has, and go from there. Observe that in documented stories and in movies portraying the heroes of such stories, it is never about people huddled and crying the whole time who survive, but the optimists who hold dear to values worth fighting for and which fuel them to live. This helps them maintain that the real world, which is just beyond this place, is one of good and delight and that this nightmare is only an insignificant deviation. Such protagonists also know that their mind is the best chance they have if they are to get out, and they are seen to constantly learn about their surroundings and their captors and to think of ways to deceive them. Through their optimism, they maintain some sense of dignity and humanity throughout a degrading and demoralizing ordeal, and in the end, they have pulled through, or died as a human being. Now that was the last of a series of examples, and then I go on to add a summary view comparing the three mindsets, and again I quote, Summarily put, if the three were put in a burning building, the subjective optimist is the type who repeats naively and unconvincingly, everything's fine, while his hair is on fire. And consider that this is how many people caricature an optimist. But a genuine optimist is not a subjectivist and does not cling to faith. An objective optimist would look at the facts and figure out what is the best plan until he were either free from the building or dead. A pessimist would simply cry out in despair, believing he's going to die, and so more likely would. Harsh, but this is the cost of failing to focus on what would objectively optimize one's chances of survival. Observe here also that a subjective optimist and pessimist resemble each other fundamentally in that, despite their opposing subjective beliefs, Both are ultimately passive in regard to the situation. Only objective optimism leads one to take responsibility for one's own fate. 
Pessimism and subjective optimism, or the put-on-a-smiling-face toxic positivity, are both determinist and passive. Objective optimism is about free will and action, life-pursuing action. It's about taking radical, that is, complete responsibility for one's own emotions and circumstances, and to focus on what one can control. So this is very different from telling people to forget about their troubles and real challenges that face them. That's not what I'm saying, and let's throw that out with a pessimist when we're seeking advice on how to cope with adversity. Now, I said in the beginning that this listener question has been bumped several weeks due to the previous two interviews. However, even with those interruptions, I did not wholly ignore this question and took advantage of the guests' relevant context to ask them about various aspects of this question. I want to add more context now to today's topic by sharing with you their insights. I begin with Dr. Fleet Mall's response. Now, earlier in our interview, Fleet refers to having had the tools to deal with prison, and you should go see the interview to learn about his incredible backstory and why he was in prison, and that the answer as to why some people thrive under adversity while others wither really all comes down to mindset, focus, resilience. But I want to know, and what we all really want to know, as does Brad in today's question, how does one nurture these things? Well, Fleet calls this the $64,000 question, which he responds to here. We all have our childhood conditioning, and we live in the interface between that and the world around us, usually for most people in a very mechanic, me- fairly mechanical, unconscious way. And we, we may think we're making autonomous adult decisions all day long, but we're really responding very mechanically. Stimulus A1 happens, we respond with B2 every time, right? And so most of us lead pretty mechanical lives. And, and you know, if our childhood conditioning is relatively benevolent and the world around us is relatively benevolent, that may be okay. It's not being awake and really alive from my perspective. But, mm-hmm. but a lot of us, our childhood conditioning is not that benevolent and the world one is not that benevolent. So being in that space, on, you know, it can be a really rough place to live. But we can actually take ownership for it. You know, and you were kind of mentioning before this, the, there's the stimulus, right? And then there's how we respond, right? So Viktor Frankl is very famous for pointing out it's that space between the stimulus and the response or the stimulus and the unconscious reaction. Therein lies the whole of our human freedom. Therein lies the whole human journey. That's where we reclaim our dignity as conscious human beings by not simply responding mechanically to every stimulus, but by being able to have enough mindfulness and presence of mind to recognize or feel the stimulus and then choose how to respond to it mm-hmm. rather than yes. unconsciously mechanically reacting to it. That's what I'm looking for. I want to know how can we develop this more and more. You know, radical responsibility, I feel is kind of an antidote to, to the culture of blame and shame and, 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 a, and kind of a cultural trend towards reinforcing victim mindsets and blame and, and, um, and, you know, that, I understand how it arises. I just don't think it's useful. And, and I certainly don't think it helps victims to encourage people to, to you know, to establish their identity around some, you know, uh, their part of some class of victimization. I don't think it really helps them. I mean, it's certainly good to validate when people have experienced victimization and just have that validated. But ultimately, I, I want to encourage people to embrace choice because that's how they can transform their own lives. And um, so... The reason I bring that up is because there's something called the fixed mindset and the growth mindset. Yes. And there's been a lot of work done in education around this. And there's, I can't remember her name is a professor that's very written a lot of the books on this, but a fixed mindset is when we basically think I'm the way I am. I have the level of intelligence I have. I'm good at this. I'm bad at that. You know, I suck at that. I'm, you know, that, that's who I am and that's the way I'm going to be. And that's it. That's a fixed mindset. A growth mindset is, you know, it's all malleable and I can grow and I can learn. I can change. Right. And so 
that's also connected to what we call the idea of post-traumatic growth. So a lot of the research into trauma over the years and also in aversive childhood uh, experiences and the impact on children and some children, how we see some people experience really aversive stuff and then thrive. And some children kind of get stuck and, and the trauma really limits their lives. And so what's the difference and how does that play out? And there's a lot of factors involved, but what it does point to is the experience of trauma can actually be a springboard towards further growth and evolution. So, you know, I think we are meant to be challenged and we need to bring challenge into our lives. Now, we, we don't want anybody to be challenged beyond their resources and traumatized, but it's, when that does happen to people, I don't think we have to necessarily completely treat them like fragile victims. We can realize that actually we all have innate strengths and resilience, and that may be, you know, what for that person becomes the source of their transformation. And I don't want to, it's not, it's not like I'm going to come to somebody and say, get over your trauma. No, no, not at all. But I don't want to get in the way of it either. I don't go, you're traumatized and you're stuck and that's where you're going to be. Just be a victim and stay there. I'll be your rescuer. No, that's not helpful at all. Right. So I think just realizing that, that, you know, throughout human history, we've seen that people, respond to challenges in amazing ways. And it really, it is what catalyzes transformation. Now, now how that has to happen for any individual, I mean, that's, there's no way to say that. And I wouldn't want to say that, right? But I think it's good just, just to recognize that, that whatever hardships we can experience in life, we can, we can leverage those for our own personal growth and transformation. All right. Yeah. Well, I really hope people can listen to inspiring messages like that, listen to podcasts like this and read books like yours and, and you know, and not necessarily have to hit rock bottom to, to start to make radical change. You can do it right now. You know, we all, we're all faced with choices all the time. And, you know, two of the particular ways we live our life. One is to kind of be in the back in the caboose of the train, so to speak. And we're just kind of getting dragged around. Or my teacher had an expression, either you learn to ride the donkey or the donkey rides you. And the donkey is all of our conditioning and life circumstances, right? And, or we just think life is happening to us and we feel victimized by life. So, you know, we can get dragged around by life or we can make the choice and it's a heroic choice to put ourselves in the driver's seat and embrace choice and use mind training and breath regulation and physiological training and all the ways to get back in the driver's seat of our own life and start living a choice and when we do so, life becomes this glorious adventure full of possibility. And so I, I, I'm, I dedicated my life to help as many people see that possibility. And it's not like I'm being critical of someone when they feel really stuck in that, you know, uh, you know, I, I feel tremendous compassion. And I want to, in any way I can, help them and support them. Uh, but there's always a way, no matter how far down we are or how helpless or powerless we feel, there is a way to begin you know, finding our way back into empowering ourselves to live a choice and embrace the agency that we all really have in our lives and start living from choice rather than just kind of in this kind of, just kind of coping with something we feel is happening to us. And, and it really, it's, it's that bifurcation in life. And, and it, it breaks my heart that more people don't find the opportunity to make that leap. And, and I certainly, um, uh, hope that I can provide that opportunity for as many people as possible. Excellent. It breaks my heart too. And that's why I have this show because I want to encourage people if you, and I do got to say that adopting choice towards taking radical responsibility, I'll, I'll add radical in now is really my conception of heroism too. Lots is helpful in that. For one, observe that he refers to cultural trends toward reinforcing victim mindsets. 
While he understands how a victim mindset arises, and so do I, he just doesn't think it's useful to encourage victims to establish their identity around some class of victimization. But this is what the smearing of optimism through such concepts as toxic positivity seem to me to be. After discrediting optimism, we have only the default of pessimism, which psychologically is one big rationalization for proclaiming and clinging to one's victim status. It's okay to validate when people have experienced real victimization, Fleet says, but he ultimately wants to encourage people to embrace choice. This is the fundamental answer I have to offer today as well. So the get over it of toxic positivity is not helpful, but also you're a victim, just wallow in it, I'll rescue you, is worse than unhelpful. In my terms, this is subjective optimism is not helpful, but neither is pessimism. And once again, what's the alternative? Of course, the alternative is an objective optimism, which I said earlier sounds akin to Frankl's tragic optimism. Now, part of what is distinct from his concept and mine is this tragic with the optimism. While I like most of what's in the concept, nonetheless it seems a contradiction in terms and is in any case unclear to me. Lots of damage could be done, I think, by those who want to discredit optimism by misleading people on the face of the name. I think framing it as subjective versus objective captures more the essential issue. As objectivity implies taking all facts into account as an impartial observer, good and bad, while subjective implies that the subject creates reality, and of course that should be discredited. I can see that Frankl's trying to say that we should be optimistic in spite of what he calls the tragic triad of pain, guilt, and death, with the idea that we acknowledge tragedy or hardship instead of evading it, but I just don't get why we ought to emphasize the tragedy in an optimistic term. It is still giving tragedy and suffering too much significance in my view. Meanwhile, the objectivity in objective optimism, as I said, is about taking all relevant facts into account, and then the ethical component comes in when we decide which facts are relevant and which story we make up of them. Now, when I say make up a story, this is not subjectivism. There are no invented facts in there, but the focus determines the story. And this fundamental choice to focus on what is good is the method of optimism that develops the mindset of optimism in a virtuous circle, thus rendering one's conditioning and whatever other psychological baggage one has effectively irrelevant. I don't identify with my past, only my present choice and what my future might be. I look into it and appreciate my past as to understand where some of the baggage comes from and therefore might let it go, and of course, psychotherapists can help with this, but I don't establish my identity around it. Thus, I grow stronger, more independent, more optimistic, and so more resilient. And now speaking more directly to the second aspect of today's question, whether adversity is necessary in awakening a person to radical change in their life, we go to Lewis Page, who, while not a PhD like Dr. Mall, nonetheless gives an enlightening and empowering answer which can inform us today. I think it comes down to uh, whatever it is that, that opens your eyes, okay. right? There, there's always got to be something that, that, that kind of uh, opens your eyes or, 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 or wakes you up, mm-hmm. you know, or, or, or gives you a shake. And, and yes. that can come from a lot of different things. It can come from it can come from watching a movie. Maybe somebody is inspired by the character and thinks, "Wow, you know, why why don't I start to have that perspective?" You know, and it can come from reading a book. It can come from listening to a podcast. It can come from you know a conversation you have in a coffee shop. You know, or uh, unfortunately, sometimes it comes it comes from hardship. You know, or but it can come from someone else's hardship and they're sharing their story. And, and, and you're learning from it, you know? So I think, I think it's, can certainly come. I don't think it's necessary. Mm-hmm. I think it, you know, I think it, it can be a catalyst for sure, mm-hmm. but I think there's other catalysts as well. If, if we're willing to open our eyes. 
Right. Well, great. I'm glad to hear that. I mean, and I expected that I took it that that was your, your opinion else. You wouldn't have bothered sharing your video, right? Why would you even bother? And yep. it's certainly my view or else I wouldn't bother doing the show either. Yeah. So, yeah, and um, I think it's a good, I think it's a great point, Matt, because people believe that they, they need to have some kind of trauma mm-hmm. or, or hardship to wake them up. You know, yeah. whereas we all have the ability to wake up. We all have the ability to see the world in, in a new way if we, if we choose to. So I'm completely on board with what Lewis says, that while we need some impetus to spur us on to action, that catalyst can come from a lot of different things. He said a movie, a character in a movie, or in a book, a podcast, maybe a conversation you've had, or another's hardship. But it's not necessary, he says, if we are willing to open our eyes. So again, it's that will, that choice. And again, it's opening our eyes or waking up to the full reality of what's going on, which always includes something good upon which we can build. Now, I do recognize that it's hard to make change when things are going well. It's hard to recognize that anything needs or wants. You know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But there's more in that I think many people don't even recognize what well can and ought to be. As Lewis said at one point in our interview, whether we're actually depressed or not, none of us is operating in optimal mental health. And that's it. If we don't wake up feeling too crappy too consistently, many of us accept that as enough, as proper, normal. So take health, for instance. You know, you say, I feel okay, or I'm not sick. Uh, Sometimes we say, things are supposed to feel like this when you're a little older. So while it ain't quite broke, it definitely ain't optimal. And it often takes feeling sick to appreciate one's health and to ask some questions. The same is definitely true with career, where we live, how we spend our recreational time, our relationships, etc. But I say that we ought to take time out to recognize that there is a a lot more we could get out of life and that we ought to demand more. Now personally, because I've demanded more and have been getting better at applying this deliberate approach to my life over the past several years, I've had enough extended runs of feeling excellent that the bar is now raised for me. And when I'm only feeling okay, it starts to feel wrong. But this, as I say, is from having adopted and developed an optimistic mindset and from having lived in that elevated space. Many people accept very suboptimal as normal and so wait until rock bottom to spur them to action. But suboptimal is not normal. But then it takes thoughtful action to start to recognize that optimistic truth. In the end, what we really want out of all this is how to develop an optimistic attitude and approach to life. How can we build resilience? Well, essentially, it's by taking responsibility for our own circumstances, by taking responsibility for our own free will to exercise our mind and embrace choice. The difference between objective optimism, pessimism, and subjective optimism is essentially a choice of focus. If we are aware of this distinction, then we can practice thinking and acting upon it, and thus develop an authentically optimistic outlook on life. This is a much more efficacious MO for dealing with hardship and for even turning it into motivation and propulsion in a positive direction. The more one is convinced of optimism, the more one automatizes it and is less affected by the world and other people. That is, we are less likely to be crushed by hardship and more likely to be accelerated in the opposite direction. We are more likely to be repelled by the ugliness of misfortune and misery as we understand how metaphysically and morally insignificant it is. As Dr. Mall pointed out, Frankel said that that space between the stimulus and response, therein lies the whole of human freedom, the human journey, he said. It is where we reclaim our dignity as conscious human beings, as opposed to reactive animals. But for me, I want to clarify that we don't actually stop and think in those moments. This thinking has to be done in times of more conscious deliberation, which takes effort. Practically, mindfulness training is one exercise that can help us with this, and I'm only starting to learn how important this is. We have to practice focusing our mind to develop control over our free will. We have to choose to focus, to ask ourselves difficult questions about what we want in life, what we ought to want in life, what it takes to get that, what kind of person we want to be, what it takes to create that, among many other questions. As we automatize the answers, we become less reactive and more proactive in dealing with life as we live it. 
including when hardship hits us, as it inevitably will. And while I haven't mentioned it yet, it's been implied throughout today's show. I've been referring to resilience, but that is wholly connected to self-esteem. Self-esteem is earned through setting up goals and achieving them. It comes from making good choices and building good habits, the kind of habits a person we can respect might have. To the extent we build self-esteem, we are resilient, and things are much less likely to crush us. I will say a final word on this, but before I do, let me first thank Brad for his question, which has challenged me to think painfully hard and has made me more resilient for it. Um, And even with that, though, guys, I've only indicated an answer, and I feel there's so much left on the table that will become glaringly absent to me sometime in the future, if not very, very soon. And you can help me with this by asking more questions, and I invite you to do so uh, in the comments section or at the Mr. Brightside Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash matthewbolton.ca. Of course, you might ask a question about something completely unrelated to today, and I will be very happy to consider taking it up on a future show. In any case, any comments or feedback are very welcome for this show in particular, and of course, at any time. I ask you as well to please share this interview if you think there's anyone who might find value in it. Thank you for all that. Now in closing, let me say that my view and promotion of optimism is not just about how to think positively through intensely difficult circumstances. It's about living every day which nonetheless takes courage, and to think and strive for the best that we might attain in our time here. Most of us deal with multiple jabs of bad news, rejections, annoyances, doubts, and other smaller hardships that drag us down more slowly. But our experience of life is completely within our control, as it's about choosing how much power to give those things and how much to give to the things that are positive but no less true. In fact, as is implied very earnestly in my life is good mantra, they are even more the rule than the exception. Where your focus goes, your energy flows. In our listener question today, Brad refers to Viktor Frankl's focused optimistic purpose, and I think that sums up all that I fleshed out today in terms of the method I'm encouraging. It is about our choice to focus or not, that is, recognizing and exercising our free will, and then the optimistic purpose ought to be one's own flourishing or thriving life, or eudaimonia, not the pessimistic road whose end is death, both spiritually and materially. You are not determined to be whatever you feel you are now, And that choice to take responsibility for one's own experience of life is truly heroic. Wake up, and the world and people in it will more consistently lift, not crush you. I'll see you guys next time. Mr. Brightside, your time out to refresh, refuel, and refocus your mind and energy toward building an optimistic framework for flourishing. Life is good. It's up to you to choose the bright side. 